um, a couple of passages. First of all, Psalm 31, and then uh, two, two readings from Luke, Luke 19, um, and then later on in the passage uh, when Jesus is before the crowds with Pilate. Psalm 31. From verse 9. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I'm in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my groans grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I'm in utter contempt of, of, of my neighbours and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the streets flee from me. I'm forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. And then from Luke's Gospel. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, slightly further on, 13 to 25, hearing again voices cry out, but these voices very different. Pilate called together the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, You bought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him, then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Father, I pray for us these familiar passages on this familiar day, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh and 
stir our hearts and bring light to our eyes, greater understanding and desire of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. In these complicated days, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I don't know about you, but I remember Palm Sunday with quite a lot of affection as I grew up, I guess in lots of schools um, over the years. Um, may, maybe you remember kind of making palm branches and waving them madly, and certainly if you grew up in a Sunday school like I did, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I remember Palm Sunday was a really bright day. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because as a child, you just remember the joy and the celebration of that day. And yet, of course with a bit more kind of more insight, you realise that this day precedes the trauma that is to come and the bizarreness of the journey for Jesus, riding no doubt into Jerusalem on a day of beautiful sunshine like today, knowing that in a few days those same voices would abandon Jesus or worse call for him to be crucified. As I say, I grew up in a Baptist church where we would enact the story uh, on the Sunday and we'd all process around the church and there were lots of old people there who would go, oh, sweet, lovely children, as we kind of waved our palm branches, seeing whose, whose teeth we could knock out. Um, and, I, you know, singing Hosanna, shouting Hosanna and waving our cloaks and our improvised palm branches. The position that I would always aspire to on those days was that of the donkey. I felt like that, that was like the prime position. I didn't particularly want to be Jesus, interestingly enough. I wanted to be the donkey. Some would say that I managed to achieve that in later life very well, possibly. But that was, um, that was always the really big deal. This donkey, this kind of very visible, very seemingly insignificant and yet important part of the story. Actually, Jesus' choice of mount was really, really important. And it came with kind of, in many ways, it was a, a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9. See, your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. We've been going through um, this, heading towards Easter, we've been doing the voices of Easter, looking at all sorts of different voices that are heard throughout this story, uh, through Sunday services and also through the Lent course. The Lent course is online, you may want to go and listen to those, reflecting on different voices. And during the Lent course, Sarah and I have thought about Judas and Pilate, uh, Caiaphas and the chief priests and this last um, Lent one that I did on Wednesday was thinking about the prophetic voices from the Old Testament all the incredible promises hundreds of promises that we read in the Old Testament and kind of indications of who the Messiah coming was going to be um, in that psalm that I read Psalm uh, 31 it's a kind of prophetic you hear the voice of Jesus in it the contempt of the people around him, the crowds around him, the voices whispering on every side, conspiring to take his life. It sounds like the chief priests conspiring to take Jesus' life, but you hear the voice of Jesus, but I trust you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Prophetically looking towards the Messiah and his willingness to set his face like flint to go towards the cross. And here we have this this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, and, and, and that wouldn't have passed people by when they, when they were kind of watching Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. These were people who would have been saturated in the scriptures and would have recognized it. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus specifically sought out a cult, the foal of a donkey, for his entry into the city. And, and as I say, the crowd wouldn't have missed the significance of that. Imagine the excitement of the day for those people, those voices that were calling out. They'd heard so much about this man. 
this Jesus. They'd heard about his preaching in the surrounding countryside. They'd heard about his miracles, giving sight to the blind. That was a profoundly messianic kind of miracle, returning the sight to the blind, giving deaf their hearing back, the lame receiving mobility. And they, you know, even the rumours spreading of his friend Lazarus being raised from the dead must have been incredible. Everyone's desperate to get a glimpse of this man, Jesus. And there was that inkling that this could be the Messiah. He seemed to have fulfilled the criteria of the Messiah. He was reportedly the offspring of a young teenage who claimed to be a virgin. That's what Isaiah had promised, had promised and prophesied would be the case. He was born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah had predicted, where the Messiah would be born. He was from the line of David. Again, Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would be from the line of David. And Jesus himself had used Isaiah's words in 61, speaking of what the Messiah would bring, to say, this is me, this is who I am. That he would preach the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover his sight for the blind, release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's where Jesus says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. It would be an outrage for the religious leaders, but for everyone else it's like, could it be? He's the one. And then, of course, from Micah, there's that donkey. So it's no wonder the crowds turned out in such force and celebrated. It was really important. They shouted Hosanna. Even that word Hosanna, it was a kind of acclamation that was used in the Old Testament, reserved really for kind of for God, a declaration of, of, towards God in relation to prayers and salvation and help from God. And so this day they shout Hosanna to the son of David. Again, that reference that he's from the line of David. So much expectation, so much excitement, so much hope. He's the one who's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. But therein, I think, lies the rub. Because this restoration of Israel, as so many understood it in that crowd, well, that would have meant different things to different people. And in that crowd, that mob who were shouting Hosanna, there would have been so many different agendas and ideas and thinking. And while maybe the crowd had been caught up in the fervour of the moment, some were excited for the wrong reasons. Some were faithful friends, but some were definitely fickle followers. And I wonder at times which we are. The truth is, faithful followers and fickle friends often turn, turn out to be one in the same thing, because each of us has the capacity to kind of be true to the teachings of Jesus and yet also, if we're honest, the capacity to speak and act as if we barely heard of him or were afraid of admitting it. I think there's very much a bit of Peter, if we're honest, lurking in all of us. Oh Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll be the first to go to the cross. And then when, you know, the pressure's on, we can turn and hide or run or... Pretend we can't hear. We're created in the image of God, yes, but so often marked by the stain of sin. The kind of Genesis 4 gives this really vivid image of sin lurking, crouching at the door, waiting to trip us up. That's the kind of wrestle, isn't it? It's like St. Paul says, I know what I want to do. I want to do the right thing. But the thing that I know is wrong, that's the thing that I keep on doing. There's this battle going on for our souls and our hearts. Well, that's why Jesus came. That's what this day is all about. The Old Testament prophecies say that the Messiah is going to destroy Israel's enemies, restore the kingdom, and extend it over the whole world. And then in a final battle, 
the enemies of God will be utterly destroyed and Jesus will truly be victorious over all. And for so, I think probably many in that crowd who saw Jesus coming in, there were many who wanted this Messiah to pursue really aggressive, even violent military action against the Romans to re-establish Israel. And actually lots of theologians think, well, that was probably the case of Judas. He was a zealot. And that his agenda for Jesus being king was very much about the Romans being overthrown. And that was his view. And so when he saw Jesus acting in ways that did seem to confound that and going willingly and yielding and, and not coming kind of in violent victory, maybe he changed. Changed his mind about this Messiah. And so in all of that, Jesus' choice of the mount that he's going to ride, this donkey, isn't just, oh, well, I'll fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. It's much more than that. It's powerfully symbolic. Because, of course, it would have confused a lot of expectations of people at the time. Because a victor coming to the city, well, he rode a white stallion, didn't he? A horse. But Jesus picks a lowly donkey, which is not great for going into battle. And it's a symbol of peace, isn't it? And so even in the midst of all that, you can imagine these zealots kind of looking at Jesus riding on this donkey and everyone's cheering and they're going, this isn't quite the image that we had down in the marketing discussions about the Messiah. We were much more imagining a triumphant kind of like buff Marvel superhero kind of figure and a donkey is all the wrong image. What's he doing? Well, those same voices were very quickly feeling let down and ready to change and speak against him. But none of this was a surprise to Jesus. That's what's so important to remember on Palm Sunday. Jesus knew all this. And having entered Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple where, if you remember, he turns over the tables, he gets really angry about the way they're making profit from selling sacrifices. And here, at this point, he tells this parable. He tells this story that's really key in the narrative of Easter. He tells the parable of the tenants, the landowner and the tenants. It's a story about a man who owns a vineyard. And then he leases this vineyard out to tenants to run it on his behalf. He kind of leaves them to get on with looking after the land. And then he kind of disappears off, retires, and allows them to work the land and share in the profit together. And the image of the vineyard, well, that would have been very, very vivid to the people who lived there. The people of Jerusalem and the workers in the fields would have understood that. But more importantly, the chief priests, the religious leaders, would have really understood and recognized instantly that when Jesus is speaking about a vineyard, he's actually speaking about Israel because that's the Old Testament image for Israel. And so instantly their ears would have pricked up and they would have thought, what is this man saying? Well, in this parable, the owner of the vineyard, understandably, because he owns it, expects a fair share of the harvest. And so when the harvest comes, he sends out his his slave to, to, to collect a proportion of that profit. But actually when the slave arrives, the tenants don't want him to have anything and they beat him up. And so the landowner sends a second slave, and the same thing happens. And then the third slave is sent, and the same thing happens. They beat him up, and they send him away with nothing. So eventually, the landowner thinks, well, I'll tell you what. I'll send my son, because they're bound to listen to him on my behalf. So, they send his, so he sends his beloved son, saying, well, of course they'll respect him. But instead, when the son comes amongst them, they reject him and kill him. Jesus understands what is going to happen to himself. In this parable, of course, God is the owner. The slaves, well, they're the prophets that go ahead speaking of the one to come. 
and who are often listened to, but then often beaten and sent away and despised. And then Jesus, Jesus is sent, the beloved son. Jesus knew that the crowd that greeted him on Palm Sunday were fickle and would soon turn against him. And when he began to fail to live up to their expectations of what a Messiah should do, well, they would reject him and crucify him, led by the chief priests, the religious leaders, who were so offended by Jesus. And even though he gave them every opportunity to recognise that he was the Messiah, well, they didn't want to lose their power. And they were offended by the words of Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the words of Jesus offend people in the world today. Jesus never sought to offend. But truth often offends lies. Truth often offends injustice. Truth often offends misuse of power. Truth seeks to set free, to liberate, to bring healing. But there's so much brokenness in our world and the enemy who works against the hearts of people. It often brings offence. This parable that Jesus told, where it looks back and it looks forward. It looks back to the words of the prophets, the ones who predicted the coming of the Messiah, and then the backlash that they received for doing so. But it also looks forward to the coming events of Holy Week, to the acclamation of the mob who call out to crucify him, the day when the Messiah is rejected, humiliated and killed. And the crowd, it's crazy, isn't it? Those same voices who are calling for Jesus to be exalted suddenly are calling out for Barabbas, a robber, a murderer and a rebel, a man who sought actually to save the Jews through insurrection. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, Jesus isn't going to beat the Romans. Let's have, let's have Barabbas back. Yeah, he's not a great man, but at least he wants to overcome the Romans. And they choose Barabbas rather than the Lamb of God. So what about for us as we finish? Well, you know, my reflection on this whole passage, is it's really easy to condemn the crowds going, oh, I can't believe it. But it's so easy to be caught up by mob, mob mentality, either in joy or kind of in destruction and, and evilness. There's a real power in mob mentality, in rapture or revolution or rage. I was thinking this week, how often do we lord our political leaders until they fail to deliver quite what we expect? And, and people then get caught up in waves of anger towards people, towards politicians, and hatred when they feel they've been let down. I think the world of politics, particularly in the Western world, but actually globally, increasingly is so toxic. Pretty much every state you look at, people feel like they haven't delivered and then they become vilified. And, and, and shouted against and hated. I mean, we've seen politicians in this country be murdered. That would have been, seemed unimaginable a few years ago. Now it almost seems to happen yearly. Politicians of all flavours and styles attacked and vilified and murdered. I won't even begin to talk about the evils, I think, of social media. But if any of you are on Twitter, I mean, I used to read Twitter. Twitter these days is just like a toxic pool in most places and people vent their anger their frustrations and and mobs seem to take sides on both sides and it's not a place of discussion and interest it's often a place where people just pour out their bile 
you think, well, what is it that can rise up in people? People seemingly might post an innocent twi- you know, a tweet online. And the, if you look at the comments that come, you think, what is it that gets stirred up in the heart of humanity that can do that? Where people's views and voices are spat at and cursed and the crowds seem to shout with an equal rage, crucify them. Humanity, I think, pretty much has the same capacity for good and evil as that baying crowd on Good Friday. But of course, there is an epilogue to this damning parable that Jesus tells, because his parable ends with the son being killed. And I suspect he was looking the high priests and the, the, the chief priests in the eye at that time when he was telling this parable. But there is an epilogue, which we do get to in just over a week's, in a week's time, which we look forward to. On the day he tells that parable, well, the hearers wouldn't have really understood it or known about it. But for Jesus, as the tenants of this world nail Jesus, the son, onto a, a cross of wood, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So great is the love of the landowner of God that he overcame this terrible death inflicted on his son. And on the third day, the sun does rise again and sits in glory, praying for you and for me. It's great news, isn't he? He's interceding on our behalf. And one day, one day he'll come again. You know, in Revelation it says, the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming back one day. And in many ways, we want those who don't yet know him to know of his love. Maranatha is a call, call of the church. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come by your spirit to those that don't yet know you. And one day he will come back and it will be fully triumphant and every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he's Christ the Lord to the glory of God. So I want to pray for us as I finish. Pray that this Good Friday our voice would rise and the voice of the church would rise not in a fickle way that changes on Monday morning, but in a consistent way of honour, and truth and love for this mighty, glorious King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this Palm Sunday, we reflect on Jesus the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, being lauded and honoured and in that glorious procession, the joy and the hope and the expectations and the relief But we know, Jesus, in your heart and mind, you knew the fickle nature of that crowd and what would befall you just a few short days later. So, Jesus, we pray for us as your people that there be a consistency in our hearts towards you of adoration and worship. That, Lord, through times of joy or times of disappointment, that we would consistently know that you are worthy of our praise. That when times are great and we feel like we're on the mountaintop, we can honour you. But when it feels like we're passing through the valley of the shadow of death and everything feels that it's been taken from us, may we then truly still be able to worship you as the good, good Father. We say we trust you. And we, the other side of the cross, are so grateful for your willingness to yield your body on that cross for us, Lord, so that we could know forgiveness. Jesus, as you prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, I thank you that you had us by name in your heart and mind and that your forgiveness extends to us 
at times when we're faithless and we don't always remain true to you. Lord, have mercy on us and call us into deeper fellowship and trust and love for you, our Redeemer and Lord. We pray together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.